Are you looking for a way to give back this Christmas? The Disaster Services Corporation, a sister company of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, can use your help. Their program, House in a Box, provides new furnishings to disaster survivors and families who have fallen into situational poverty. Your gift provides beds, linens, dishes, pots and pans, dressers, silverware, bathroom setup, dinette, and a couch. Give the gift of a fresh start to a disaster survivor family this Christmas season by donating at svdpdisaster.org. The first letters of St. Vincent de Paul, svdpdisaster.org. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Binta Niambi Brown. She's the founder of Omalili Projects, and she's the newest member of the Board of Directors of America Media. She's a talent manager for musicians, authors, influencers, comedians, actors, and screenwriters. She also founded the Black Music Action Coalition. Benta's accomplishments are so many, I just can't go into all of them today. She's a graduate of Barnard College, Columbia University, and the Columbia University School of Law. She was also previously a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Center for Business and Government, and she was an intern for Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. She also plays multiple instruments and talks deeply of how music is an expression of faith. Music is a way of connecting with God. And I just thought that Binta would be able to bring a lot of light to a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast. We talk about Kanye West. We talk about All Lives Matter. We talk about what is our responsibility as consumers to hold people who have large platforms, to hold them accountable for the things that they say and do. I also think Binta gives an interesting perspective on the church and our challenges, as well as what Black Catholics specifically face in the church. How do we deal with the particular things that we experience? And so I wanted to have this conversation with her because I just thought she was an amazing person with so many different life experiences and being a new board member for America Media, that she'd be somebody that you would be interested in hearing from. But before we get to this interview, I just discovered this amazing program, 12 Women Who Shaped America, 1619 to 1920, on Wondrium. There was a time that the women's rights or women's suffragist movement was having a big march, and Alice Paul did not want the Black women to participate. She wanted them to march in the back. And Mary Church Terrell, along with Ida B. Wells, basically refused. They were like, no, we are going to march with you. We are not going to be relegated to the back. And by their persistence and refusal to be relegated to the back, they prevailed and they marched with all the other women in this suffragist march. And I just thought that was amazing. And with Wondrium, we get to learn about whatever we want, whenever we want. There's unlimited access to thousands of hours of audio and video content, documentaries, tutorials, and more. And you can watch or listen completely ad-free and on any device. And that was very helpful to me as I was watching this program on Mary Church Terrell. And every Wondrium topic is presented by an amazing teacher. And these teachers are actual experts in their fields. So find your next aha moment by signing up for Wondrium. You'll love it. 
Sign up today through my special URL to get this great offer of getting 50% off your first three months. That's half of when you sign up for your first quarterly plan, and that's a fantastic deal. So how do you sign up? Go to wondrium.com slash Gloria. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash G-L-O-R-I-A. Wondrium.com slash Gloria. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if these conversations are meaningful to you, please follow the show on your podcast app and support us by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you get a digital subscription? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Binta Niambi Brown is up next. Binta, I'm so delighted to speak with you today, and I want to congratulate you on your recent ascent to the Board of Directors for America Media. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Okay, so you're a modern-day Renaissance woman in so many ways, and I told my audience that it would take up most of the podcast simply to list all your enormous successes, but I do want my audience to get to know you, so to speak, and so I want to start off at the very beginning, and you correct me if I have some of these facts wrong. You were born and raised in Northern Virginia. You're the middle child with an older brother and a younger sister. You were baptized and raised Catholic, right? Mostly right. I was born in Philadelphia and raised in Northern Virginia. Ah, okay, okay. So in Northern Virginia, did your family have a home parish? Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, I was just drawn to the church. And so like, we would bounce around from parish to parish. I had my first communion and sacrament of reconciliation at St. James and I think that's in Arlington. And then we went to St. Agnes for a little while. My first CCD was at St. Charles, but their CCD program was kind of funny because it made the parents do everything, <laughs> which meant that we weren't always doing it. Right, right, right. You know, my parents were working and busy raising us. And then a bunch of my friends, their families belonged to Holy Trinity in Georgetown, which is a Jesuit parish. And so by middle school, high school, we had switched and we've been members of Holy Trinity for probably 40 years at this point. But for our listeners who don't know what CCD is, it stands for Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. And that's our religious education that we do in the Catholic Church. We call it CCD. So just for people wondering what that is. So you've been with Holy Trinity. And I also understand another one of your talents is music. You're musically gifted. How many instruments do you play now? Um, I mean, it depends on whether you count each sax in the saxophone family as a separate instrument. But I would say probably 14, 13 to 14 instruments. During the pandemic, I started learning the saxophone ah. and actually played it pretty much every day. And <laughs> I've been playing alto sax as well as tenor sax. How did you discover that you had a love and a gift for music, playing instruments? It's my first language, music. And so I just remember from 
the time I was a very little girl. And I'll never forget this moment, hearing my maternal grandmother playing Scott Joplin in the parlor of her house. Mm. And it was in Texas. It was hot as the Dickens, the middle of the summer in Texas. <laughs> and they were passing out lemonade. My family had just arrived from driving across the country to get to Texas, where we spent a lot of our summers before I went to sleepaway camp. And Same here as Texas. That's my summer place, too. It was amazing. And I just remember the sound of her piano and wanting to make the same sounds and asking my parents if I could also play. And if it wasn't my maternal grandmother, then it was on my father's side of the family. My father's side of the family is from New Orleans. And, you know, if you've got New Orleans in you, <laughs> then you've got two things in you. You've got music and you probably have Catholicism or touch points with Catholicism. Yes. Right. And so it was indistinguishable for me. You know, like I was just always surrounded by music. My parents played music, all kinds of different music. I have inherited all of their albums and records that they ever collected. I have them in my record collections in Northern Virginia and Chicago, where I spend a lot of time. But I think my first love is probably the piano the piano and any keys instrument for that matter. Okay. Okay. I hear that. How does music and faith merge for you? Because I know your career, well, first of all, you do many things. But one of the things that you seem to stay in is the music and performance area. How does faith factor in that space for you? Well, I don't think that I'm anything without my faith or without meditating constantly on the word of God or participating in the sacraments and the sacramental life of the church. I don't really know what my existence is, like how one would get through life. Mm. And I know that people do, but I don't know how I would get through life without the framework that's provided by my faith or my belief. For me, music, music is uh, a f one of the most profound forms of expression. And I think that we understand one another through music and ourselves through music in ways that no other form of expression really helps us to understand ourselves or one another. And as a result, it can be used for great good, and it can be used for tremendous harm, as we've seen throughout history. Well, I was going to say, when you play music or when you sing, you pray twice. Yes. You know, I don't, right? so yes. And here you talk about music and faith. I imagine it just must be this spiritual experience also. Absolutely. It's a singular experience. It's not two separate things. It's not either music or faith. You know, you think about, and this is not just a Catholic thing. This is in every religious tradition. I don't know that there's any religious or spiritual tradition that doesn't involve at a minimum chanting, mm -hmm. you know, or humming, you know, or intoning in some kind of way. And so I think music and faith are, at least for me, indistinguishable. And it was one of the things that made being in the music and entertainment space so important to me because it's something, it's ubiquitous. It's very difficult to find a person who doesn't love music. I was going to say, I would think it's really hard too. And I can't remember what musical it was, but everybody sings in the play, in the musical, except for the devil. He speaks all his parts. <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's part of our humanity. And clearly it's a great gift from God. You know, the angels speak to us in music, you know, and we speak to the angels in music. So, I mean, it, to me, it's just all been so deeply integrated and I can't think of them as being separate, but I've met one person who have said to me point blank, I don't like music. 
and they don't listen to it ever. Wow. That was shocking to me. You know, like I was, it was, it was like, extremely why? surprising. <laughs> why would you deprive yourself you know, yeah. of yeah, something I mean, that's so, I mean, could just take you places. I was just listening to Alice Smith's rendition of I Put a Spell on You. Oof. And I was crying. It was yeah. so incredible. And it, it was the most unique rendition of I Put a Spell on You, that song that was made famous by Nina Simone, but it was Nina Simone doing a cover of Screamin' Jay Hawkins, I think it. His name is the original person that wrote I Put a Spell on You. But my gosh, to deprive yourself of being able to hear that or experience that and to be able to... Music to me... Like, it could be therapy, frankly. If you need a good cry, you could put on a certain song. If you need to feel up, you could put on a certain song. If you want to think and concentrate, you put on certain music. So I'm like, to be deprived of that, it's like God gave us ears for a reason, you know? (laughs) Our very bodies are musical instruments. I think that that's why it's such a profound form of expression. You know, our hearts are percussion. Boom, 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 boom. You know, like they beat. Yes. Our voices, you know, even... If you're not from the South or from New Orleans or Texas or somewhere where you can have a beautiful lilt, Tennessee, I think, and Virginians can have really beautiful accents too. Even if you're from a place like D.C. where it's a very flat accent, the very cadence, the rise and fall in our voices, the slow down, the speed up, it's music. Speaking is music. It's Maybe it's not always set to a beat, but it doesn't have to be set to a beat for it to be music, for it to be poetry. Yes, indeed. You know, one of the things that you were saying is like your faith being so deep with you. One of the things that just as a woman, as a Black woman, woman of faith, one of the things, at least when I worked in corporate America, there was difficulty being a person of faith. There's certain perceptions about us. How did you manage that? Well, I think part of it is that I grew up, and I apologize, I mean, be, I didn't realize I was going to get emotional, but I grew up with two parents one of whom in particular was very public in the expression of his faith, my father. Mm. And so for reference for your listeners, my father was a columnist for the Washington Post and a media personality. And so in his writing and everything that he did, his belief figured into that. He gave a not small number of interviews during his life about his faith and the role that faith plays in his life. And so I grew up with the example of a parent who was very publicly Catholic. The other thing is that my group of friends in college and otherwise, most of my friends are Jewish and they never shied from the expression of their faith. And maybe it's because I have a competitive thing. I don't know. I fully embraced (laughs) what they celebrate and they observe, but I never stopped believing what I believe. And for better or for worse, I've lived a lot of my life either innocent or ignorant. And sometimes there's not a big distinction between the two. And what I mean by that is that I didn't realize that it was strange to talk about my faith publicly. I didn't realize that it was something that could potentially hurt me right? and that it could penalize me. And I think that when I did begin to realize those things, first of all, it was too late. Yeah, <laughs> uh, right, right. But, but secondly, I realized that I didn't care. And the reasons I didn't care were because of the gospel itself. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times did you deny Christ? I didn't want to be somebody who was denying Christ in my life. I want my joy and my love of God and the celebration of this faith to flow so freely through me that others, I don't want to evangelize in the sense of, 
hey, come to church with me and be Catholic. Right. You know, like change what you believe and believe what I believe instead. I'm not that person. But I do believe in evangelization in the sense that by trying to lead my life and to order my life in a particular kind of way, and by trying to allow the virtues to flow through me and being honest about those moments when I'm given to vice, when I'm given to sin. Yeah. By living my life in that particular way, my hope is that others will catch the joy of Christ, that they will be infected with the desire for a relationship with God and to grow in holiness in their own lives. So is this outlook that you have, is that what gave you the oomph, so to speak, to do the kind of humanitarian work you did in Cambodia? Yeah. I mean, I was raised in a household that put love, it was the foundation and it was the pinnacle. And it's also the middle. Love is in everything that we do. I do believe that if you are blessed with certain opportunities, that you should try to help others. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work that you did in Cambodia? Well, I have always done pro bono work. And the reason why I always did pro bono work when I was practicing law before I switched into the entertainment industry full time was because I believed that lawyers have an obligation to not only be zealous advocates of their business clients' interests, but to contribute meaningfully to society and to help sustain the rule of law and to fight for those and advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. And that's born of love. And then combine all of that with being a child of the civil rights movement who benefited from all of the advances in the civil rights movement, who I wouldn't have had the life that I've had had we not had the successes of the civil rights movement that we had. Same. And so I always had this sense of gratitude on the one hand, but also this recognition in the human dignity of all people, which was one of the things that compelled me to go to law school in the first place. And so when you take that and you take this notion of what your obligations and responsibilities are as an attorney, it's a very short jump to becoming a human rights advocate and doing pro bono work in that regard. And so the work that I did in Cambodia, which was advocating on behalf of women and girls and writing a report for the United Nations on the, I don't actually don't remember what it was because this is now quite some time ago. It was over 10 years ago. Understood. But it was, you know, I went all over Cambodia interviewing women who were involved and implicated in sex trafficking and all other kinds of, I mean, it's all like the worst stuff. It's sex trafficking, it's human slavery, just every bad thing that you could think of. And I learned a lot from that experience too, because so many of the people that I spoke to there, despite the history of Khmer Rouge, and by that I'm referencing the genocide that occurred there, despite the continued human rights violations, a lack of dignity afforded so many different people, there was a joy and a persistence and a desire to keep going that I found to be really important. Because in a hyper-materialist environment like the United States, I think sometimes we equate our humanity with our materialism and how quickly we can get things, you know, like how quickly we can fix and solve things. Yeah. You know, we're a very impatient culture here. And so to see joy in all of these folks' lives, so many of their, you know, like they kept putting one foot in front of the other, like waking up each day and doing the thing. 
it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. So amidst all the suffering and all this stuff, you still saw the joy in the people compared to our culture and our environment where, you know, sometimes I think we forget God is there because we're like, we can do it ourselves. We can fix it ourselves. There's no space for contemplation of something greater than ourselves. One of my favorite meditations in the rosary is the fourth mystery, I guess the sorrowful mysteries. Okay. And it's the carrying of the cross. And in the carrying of the cross, the virtue that we're praying for as we meditate is an increase in patience, right? And so what I hope for us here at home is that we can pick up our crosses, like we all have them, and that we can carry them with patience as opposed to like in pursuit of the big mission, as opposed to needing things to be fixed right away. Amen. We'll be right back. But I want to back up on something that you said about your life, that most of your friends are Jewish. You have a deeply Catholic faith. You're also in the music industry. So I have to ask about this yay stuff (laughs) for a number of reasons, because Kanye West, if people don't know, is a musician, performer, producer, all this stuff, big name in the music industry. And he had, as of the last few years, also come out that he's very Christian, right? And then to me, I thought something was off when he made the comment years before he started making statements that people say are anti-Semitic, when he started saying that for Black Americans, slavery was a choice. And I was like, okay, my homeboy's tripping. But on the other hand, he was also talking about, you know, the life of the child in the womb. And sometimes it seems like in our believing spaces, we latch on to someone that says this thing, you know, that is true about the dignity of the human being in the womb and somehow want to dismiss all this other stuff that goes directly against the dignity of the human person outside the womb. Help me understand how did the yay thing hit the music industry even before? I, I, it didn't seem like he got much of a response when he would say anti-Black things, but he's saying anti-Semitic things now, but people are saying are anti-Semitic and it seems like it's a much larger blowback for him. Help me make sense of this, please. I don't think any of us can make sense of yay. Mm. You know, I, I don't even know. I mean, I think it maybe it makes sense to him. <laughs> But I, I don't know that sense can be made of it. It's also very, very complex for some of the reasons you just stated. And something that I struggle with is, you know, I think about Christ and how Christ invited all people mm-hmm. to the table. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, all kinds of different people, like all kinds of social undesirables. Yes. But I think that what Kanye misses and what he says is that Christ invited and didn't discriminate, but he also gave people the opportunity to heal and to redeem themselves. So when it comes to his rhetoric about Hitler and loving Hitler and saying that we should love Nazis, in a disordered way, if you're comparing it to Christ and Christ's instruction that we love all people, you can kind of, like in a disordered way, I would think that it makes sense in some people's minds. But the part that he's missing, and it's very, very important to say this, is that there has not been an acknowledgement of the wrong. Yeah. He has forgotten that entire part of forgiveness requires, in the very first instance, an acknowledgement 
of the wrong that you have caused to other human beings, right? And so, like, Hitler never acknowledged that. So how you can be saying what you're saying about Hitler and not also acknowledging the deep, 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 deep harm, like, yes, we should allow people to redeem themselves. You know, like, I believe deeply in the power of forgiveness. How can I not? God forgives me every day. (laughs) You know, like, on my best day and on my worst day, I know that I'm loved by God. Amen. And I think that part of the reason why there is such backlash there is not necessarily because, you know, it's affecting Jewish people, because to say that to me is to not understand that Jewish people, I don't think that Jewish people in Hollywood have felt as empowered as a lot of other groups of people have felt until very, very recently. Because Mm -hmm. in the conversations I'm having with people, they felt like they couldn't even, I mean, there have been times over the course of the last five, six years where they felt like if they were to say what they really felt and to say that's anti-Semitic publicly to somebody, that they would get an extraordinary amount of backlash. Sure. Right. And I know a lot of people who are very quiet and I would have conversations with people and they would say, well, what can we do? Like, how do we work this through? And I, I'd say, do what I do as a black woman and say, like, I don't like that behavior. I think that that behavior is discriminatory and racist and talk about it, educate people, you know, like have a conversation in terms of gay when it comes to his anti-black stuff. You know, I'm one of the people who for a little while, I would rationalize it, Mm. you know, and I would rationalize it in my humanity because I love his music. I think that he is musically brilliant Mm. and I know what his music has done for my soul. And it hurts to think that somebody can have the views that he has that can manifest what appear to be self-hatred. I can't say that it is because I don't know. And that's a judgment, but it would appear to be not loving yourself as a black person and loving your black humanity. I couldn't reconcile that with this incredible music, Yeah, you know? And so I was looking for the thread of where does this make sense? And I think that's what a lot of us as fans of artists do is that when the artist is behaving in a way that is just immoral for lack of a better word, that we try to rationalize it in part because music is so powerful. It, um, How could you make something so beautiful and say things so ugly? Right. Or even like when you think about his earliest music or even his Christian music, his gospel music, like how can you say those things and say them credibly and then at the same time not understand the hurt that you're causing? And this goes both with the anti-Black statements as well as the anti-Semitic statements. Yeah. But there are a couple of things that I just want to say while I'm here. Yeah. I don't want us to confuse his statements with mental illness, you know, because it's not what it is. <laughs> There's a decision on his part to not read. There's a decision on his part to not educate himself about things, you know, and there is the appearance of greed. It was also hard for me because he does work with a lot of people with whom I work and has worked with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the biggest songs some of my artists have worked on have been songs they've done with him. And I'm very grateful and deeply appreciative of the role that he's played in helping to boost some of the people with whom I collaborate and work with now. I don't want to call this mental illness. I think that there is an element of greed, and I think that there is an element of refusing to read and to educate. And then there's just not an appreciation of your platform or the responsibility and the danger that is created by espousing these things. One last thing I'll say is that with the Black stuff, 
a lot of us were just kind of laughing at it, not because we thought it was funny, because it was just so silly and ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> but then it was when he went and he was wearing the White Lives Matter T-shirt. Did you know on the other side of that T-shirt was a picture of Pope John Paul II? I did know that. I was like, what? And that for me was when I was personally in a place of, I cannot rationalize yeah. because it's one thing to say slavery is a choice. That's a bad thing to say because it means that you are ignoring all of American history and not even just American history. You're actually ignoring world history. Yeah. Because nobody has ever said, let me be a slave. <laughs> right. right. And I could understand, oh, maybe there's some figurative thing, blah, 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 rationalization, right? And I'll take responsibility for my role in, in trying to interpret and understand what she was saying. But it's a whole other thing to take a saying of the white supremacist movement, which tried to ruin the United States of America, which has tried to take down our democracy on January 6th, yeah. where I'm driving through from Tennessee into southwestern Virginia and seeing massive confederate flag on the top of the hill and flooring it to a hundred and hoping that I don't get stuck driving by myself because it's clear to me that that's a place where I'm not welcome and that if not safe if I get pulled over or if I'm not even pulled over whatever it is that I'm as a black woman I'm not safe in that space in that place you know so for him to be used to allow himself to be used by white supremacists who have done everything to tear us all down and to put that T-shirt on so that they can then say, I'm justifying my behavior, my hatred, my contempt for people who look like you, for Jews, for all of these other people who are not white Christian, for Catholics, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. It's a level of not taking responsibility and being ignorant that is very hard for me. What well, made me wonder, who are his friends? Who is around him? And also that I was wondering, is he so prideful he can't hear anything? But uh, so to have this All Lives Matter shirt, and for people who are listening, say, oh, what's wrong with that? All Lives Matter came about as a retort to Black Lives Matter. It was like, All Lives Matter, and you shut up over there. And it was definitely something used by white supremacists, the alt-right, all that stuff to denigrate Black people's legitimate calls for our lives to be valued and protected in encounters with policing, for starters, as one area. And so just in a, giving people a little bit of background as to why we, Bent and I, and hosts of other Black folks and hosts of other non-Black people understood the All Lives Matter stunt to be something that was profoundly dangerous and definitely signal boosting white supremacy. And people don't understand that. They're like, well, but they're both Black. And I'm like, Black people can signal boost and enable white supremacy. And I also think it shows been to really, not just for Ye, but even from looking at what happened with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and the response from people I know who are believing Christians, who would say they were pro-life, it shows that we have a problem. We have an anemic understanding of human dignity. So it's like we can talk about human dignity in the womb, but then outside of that, if the person isn't perfect like Jesus, their human dignity is questionable or not worthy of defending. And so... To see this in Ye and to see the big platform that he has, and it, while at the same time, 
you know, identifying himself as a faithful Christian, it just was blowing my mind. Now, when he started saying the anti-Black stuff, frankly, I was like, I don't have time for his foolishness, was what I was thinking. And so that's the kind of laughter I had. Oh, he just, I just fool. And I was thinking maybe he shouldn't have been bragging about being a college dropout. You know what I mean? I was like, maybe, dude, you do need to go and get actually educated so that with the platform that you have, you aren't doing so much harm. But how do we hold these kinds of people with these large platforms? How do we, as consumers of whatever it is that they're selling, how can we hold them accountable? Yeah. And I'm thinking about it in the context of a bunch of billionaires who are using their platforms in ways that are causing harm to other people. Mm. I raised this in the context of social narcissism, which seems to be the real pandemic that we're all facing. And I don't think that it's limited to the United States. I think that it's very much global. This idea that we all have access and bullhorns that we can use to express ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Megaphone, yeah. You know, like our economy is now based on trying to get attention, not on actually adding value or giving attention to one another, giving attention to things that matter. It's about getting attention, right? And so... I think the most important thing is that for those of us who are in positions where we have platforms of any size is to think responsibly about the platforms we have and to ensure that we're not being hypocrites in the use of those platforms, right? Mm. You know, and I look at Catholic Twitter and political Twitter and all of these different Twitters, and I look at all of the anger and the self-righteousness and the loss of self on a very regular basis. And so I think the first thing is that we need to look at ourselves and to check ourselves. And that means me too. I'm not perfect. I've definitely fallen into the the traps. I've made those mistakes. I've had arguments I shouldn't have had. I've thought that I was being funny and cute and it wasn't funny or cute. You know, I'm extremely imperfect and I'm well aware of that. But I think that the first thing is to become really deeply self-aware and reflective. And particularly so for those of us who consider ourselves to be the faithful. That we have to be reflective and we have to think about it in the context of our faith, in the context of the gospel and what the gospel is really preaching and what it says about love and love of neighbor and love of self. The second thing is that we need to pay attention to what we're paying attention to, you know, and if we're only paying attention to these people who are, you know, like the algorithm works because we are not disciplined as human beings. And when I say the algorithm works, what I mean is like the ability to, you know, like everything that's outrageous or angry or dark that gets so much attention, like it's because we pay attention to that. So I think part of it is just saying, I'm going to make a choice to no longer pay, you know, like. Don't click the link. (laughs) When a child is having a tantrum, the best way to take energy out of the tantrum is by not servicing the tantrum, you know, and what we do is we service the public tantrums that people are having all of the time. Our news media covers it like it's news. Every time certain individuals say or do anything, whether it's newsworthy or not, whether it is worthy of our attention or not, they cover it. Why do they cover it? Because it's scandalous. It's going to bring them clicks. People are going to talk about it. But it's not healthy. It's not healthy for any of us. So I think the other thing that we need to do is we need to start insisting that That not be what we're exposed to. These platforms, these social media companies are extremely powerful and they have the power of music because it's the repetition of ideas over and over and over again. Even if you're just scrolling, 
you're seeing that. Yeah. You know, I sometimes feel mentally ill after I've spent, you know, 20 minutes looking at all of that stuff. Like I feel sick. I feel depressed. All that doom scrolling. In all honesty, <laughs> like I feel grateful that I can participate in the Eucharist and that I can go and sit before the Blessed Sacrament because, Amen. you know, like I would much rather spend time in that space in any event than in this space of these things, like all of these bad ideas. And even of the morally righteous, even that, or even the people who are, I guess, morally just, who are on these platforms, even with that, there's a certain anger or there's a despair or there's a culture sometimes of victimhood, which is not the same thing as faith, you know? Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's this idea that we're all put upon. I'm still shaping and forming my thoughts on this, but I do see that there's a lot of holding on to our complaints and our hurts and articulating that Mm -hmm. as opposed to finding ways through them. And I am not saying that these are easy things because there's a lot of trauma in our society, but I guess that's ultimately where faith really comes in for me. Amen. Two questions as we get ready to close. And there's so much more I could talk to you about, but I'm just going to try to end with these two questions. What are the challenges you think the Catholic Church is facing today in the United States? And then what are the challenges also Black Catholics are facing today in the United States? I'm going to take the Black Catholics part first. And it's funny because, you know, most of us go to white churches. Yeah, we do. And we don't always feel welcome in those spaces. And I think that Black Catholics have the same challenges that Catholics of all races and genders have when it comes to the institution of the church, which seems to sometimes act in ways that are inconsistent with the teaching of the church and in particular the gospel. This is to all of us. This is our church. This is the people's church. We have to keep going. We have to keep praying for one another, for ourselves and for our church leaders, because they're human. And in their humanity, they're going to make grave mistakes because that's part of what it is to be human. There would be no need for the church if we were all all perfect, right? And we have to keep in mind the humanity Mm -hmm. of those who are attempting to lead us. And that does not mean excusing gross behavior or not saying we need to be better because through prayer and through words and through work, we get better. But I think that we can't abandon the church because of the hurts we feel. I think that one of the most important things we have to do is really, for lack of a better word, cling with all of our might to the gospel and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I think that part of the reason why my spirituality is, I mean, if it can be said that it's deep, is as deep as it is, is because I take praying the rosary and praying the the stations of the cross and the passion of Christ very similarly. Because as I've gone through my own life, I have come to appreciate that the passion of Christ in particular is all of the hurt and all of the pain that one might experience over the course of their lives in three days. And that there are layers upon layers in terms of what we get from the way Christ behaved, his focus on the mission, saving all of us from sin, loving through pain, Mm -hmm. like all of the lessons for how we can live and feel more whole are there. And so I think the most important thing that we need to do is to keep going to the church. Because if we stop going, we're only hurting ourselves. We're only depriving ourselves of the Eucharist and participating in the life of Christ. That was one of the things when I talked to the Holy Father and I said, well, what do you have to say to Black Catholics? Why should they stay? And when he says, 
He had said earlier, I suffer with you. I love you. Resist and stay. Resist that temptation to leave. And I'm hearing the same thing from you. You know, resist that temptation to leave. Think about what you are abandoning. Now, we're not saying to accept abuse. I'm not saying accept abuse. Right. No way. I'm not saying that because that's a sin too. When we allow ourselves to be abused by the church, by institutions, by individuals, that is also a form of sin. That's a separation of the self, right? So I think that we have to stay and not just stay. We have to keep praying. We have to mm-hmm. participate in the fully in the sacramental life of the church. We have to keep studying scripture and reading scripture. I mean, would we have had a civil rights movement that allowed us all of the realization of our rights that we've had without scripture, without the word? Yeah, people don't realize the civil rights movement is deeply Christian, has a deeply Christian ethos, which is so different from some of the movements we have now today, which in some cases are anti-Christian. Those movements don't succeed because they're not based on the fundamental premise of love. The civil rights movement succeeded for as long as it did because it was based fundamentally on love love of self, love of neighbor, love. That's why it was successful. And the movements that are based on and rooted in anger or a lack of forgiveness, they can't succeed. But a movement that is based in love, which is what Christianity is, which is what Catholicism is. Catholicism is a movement that is based and is firmly rooted in the notion and the idea of love. And so I think that the most important thing we do is we continue going. And we exercise forgiveness when we must, including forgiving ourselves, but that we don't give into our hurt and say, we're not going to go any longer. So in terms of the U.S. Catholic Church, it's all of us. We are oftentimes contributing to the harm in the church by forgetting to live the gospel and how we deal with people who have different perspectives or understandings of our faith. None of us are holy yet. We are in the process of perfecting our holiness and becoming more holy day after day after day. And so part of that is giving grace and compassion to one another. But another part is really, you know, again, just like looking at ourselves and how we are interacting with one another Amen. and participating in the life of the church, as opposed to seeing the church as the villain. My father once said something in an interview that has been a guide point, and he also said it to us as kids, has been a guide point in my life. And I'll wrap with this. Okay. My dad grew up, both my parents for that matter, grew up in the segregated South, mm-hmm. where sometimes some of the good white folks in New Orleans did not always apply themselves when it came to the exercise of their Catholicism. And would maybe sometimes not even necessarily welcome my father and his family, my family, into the church. Or they might be one way in church and act a whole other way outside the church, which was worse. And a journalist asked my dad in an interview, how can you be Black and Catholic, given the history of racism? And my father said, I understand the imperfections of the church. I'm not Catholic because of a building or because of an institution. I'm Catholic because I believe fundamentally in love mm-hmm. and the teachings of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And I believe that it is true. I believe that it is complete. And it is how I have chosen to lead my life and to raise my family. And that is the same thing for me. 
There are a lot of problems in the institution of the church. There are pro a lot of problems with American Catholicism. There is the possibility of a schism. But we have to be radical in our love of God and our love of one another and the love of what our faith teaches us. And that's where the church is going to get its healing from. Amen. Not from all of us leaving or giving up or saying, I can't go to church anymore because they're too conservative or they're too liberal or they're not doing it the right or their mass is in Latin or their mass <laughs> isn't in Latin or they don't kneel in the right place. You know, like, I don't know that Jesus cared about all of that. I think that Jesus cared about love. Benta Brown, thank you so much. This has been a, just a wonderful conversation with you. Loved hearing so much about your faith and your perspectives on the faith and how you live it and what you do professionally and what you've done also, even though it's still your professional work, what you've done on a pro bono basis. Just amazing. And thank you for your insights on, you know, the area of how we should be more introspective about what we're consuming and what we're doing if we want to be able to see more out there in the world regarding the dignity of the human person or loving our neighbor, if you will. Thank you so much. Really glad you were able to come on the Glory Purpose podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Glory Purpose podcast and joining with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Do me a favor, leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes, Maggie Van Dorn, and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.